You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man, as a two-time felon, I work really hard and I've been a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Hey, hey, uh, welcome back, Freedom Pack family. Hey, what do you guys think of our new intro? We've been playing around with it lately. We may make some slight changes to it, but what do you guys think? Do you like it? Do you not? Let us know. Please email us your thoughts, freedompact at gmail.com. Let us know whether you like it or what we could do differently, or if there are any other intros out there that you like that we should take inspiration from. So guys, happy Monday. Today on the show, we are joined by nationally acclaimed journalist Alex Hutchinson. Alex Hutchinson is a national magazine award-winning journalist whose work appears in Outside, The Globe, The Mail, The New York Times, The New Yorker, and other publications. Alex is the best-selling author of the fantastic book Endure, which looks at expanding the human limits of the body and the mind. So, the timing of this podcast couldn't be any better. As I am sure that many of you know that on October 12th, 2019, Elliot Kipchoge ran the first ever, ever two-hour marathon, which we delve into at the beginning of the podcast. We delve into, you know, many other aspects of increasing the human limits of the body and the mind things like self-talk, how to increase your cognitive and physical stamina. So let me give a quick side note to this podcast. So many of you listening right now will be listening to this and thinking, you know, wait, Joe, I'm not a runner. I don't care about running. So to that, I would say that what we discuss in this conversation is not specific to running. We look at the human potential. We look at how to increase the human potential, how to overcome the limiting beliefs and the mental shackles that our mind plays on us. This could be applied to growing a business, studying an exam, writing a book. I have to say that I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I highly, highly recommend you guys listen to the full thing as I just feel as if there are so many takeaways throughout the episode. So without any further ado, Alex Hutchinson, welcome to the Freedom Pact. So Alex, let's look at the fascinating case of Elliot Kipchoge. The guy, he did it. He broke the two-hour marathon barrier. What a guy. When it happened, what was your reaction like because obviously it must be a very exciting time for you yeah i mean so the, the race took place in uh, on a saturday morning in vienna which meant it started at two fifteen in the morning for me i'm in toronto and uh <laughs> so my main reaction was oh my god i'm so tired i can't believe i got up at two in the morning to watch a race on youtube um but i i was impressed i was blown away i would say i was more surprised two years ago at the breaking two event when Kipchoge at the time the world record was two basically just under 203 and Kipchoge ran two hours 25 seconds he missed by 25 seconds the two hour thing and so once he did that you knew it was possible you knew that it's not like well humans were not meant to to go under two hours you knew that okay he came within less than a second a mile of of doing it so someone can do it whether he would do it on that given day that Saturday morning in Vienna uh, was always still, you know, you still have to do it. And, to, you know, if I, I, I know for myself, I can think of the best times I've ever raced at a given distance, whether it's 5K or 10K or whatever. Uh, I've done them once in my life. And then I've tried many other times and you don't always, 
live up to what you know you're capable of. In fact, more more often than not, you don't. So Kipchoge still had to live up to what he was capable of on the morning. And so I, th- that's the thing that impressed me most is that when the pressure was on and the world was watching, uh, in a situation where the whole event, which had a reported budget apparently of about 15 million pounds, the whole event was a failure if Kipchoge had a bad day. There was no other, per, you know, another, it's not like someone else would have won the race. He, he was the only comp- competitor in this race. And so he, under enormous pressure, did this thing that we kind of knew was po- was now possible, but but to still see it done was was pretty amazing. So many questions that come into my mind now. So if we just look at Kip Chogi's achievement there, and then we link it in with the work in which you have done, your fascinating book Endurance, which I have to say I was felt as if I was sweating whilst reading the book in certain <laughs> parts. <laughs> it was a real interesting read. So one of the questions which I remember thinking about as I was reading this was, is there a case to say that genetically there are just certain people, like, for example, like, say, Kipchoge, I think he was like, an, was he an Olympic champion as well? Um, he, uh, he was a world champion at age 18, 16 yeah. years ago. So he's yeah, been at the top for a long time. Are there people like that, which genetically they just have a, an advantage, say, over the lay person? Is that fair to say? Uh, 100% fair to say. The, the, the interesting question is, what are those advantages and which ones matter most? Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued for the answer. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. Well, now that, I've, now that I've asked myself a question, let me, let me answer. <laughs> no, um, you know, so when we think about people like Kipchoge, uh, often the first thing that, we, that jumps to mind is you know, his muscles must be special. Or in the case of endurance running, uh, often people think about something called VO2 max, which is uh, a laboratory measure of endurance. Basically, it's a measure of how quickly your heart can deliver oxygen from the air to your muscles, which and your muscles need them to for sustained exercise. Need oxygen for sustained exercise. So, to be, if you want to be an Olympic champion, you need to have a very high VO2 max, one that very few people in the general population could achieve, no matter how hard they trained. So, um, it's been shown that there's a fair amount of genetic heritability to vo2 max that everyone can get better at vo2 max but some people get up off the couch after 10 years of of sitting there eating crisps and their vo2 max is still higher than other people would get even if they trained for those 10 years so kipchoge obviously had the physical tools that you need to be at that poker table to to make it to the olympics You, you can't get there if you're not born with certain uh genetic propensities um it's important to acknowledge that you also can't get there. You can't just be born there. You have to work exceptionally hard then to take advantage of those uh, genetic capabilities. So um, it's not a case of like, well, it's easy for some people. It's not. It's not remotely easy. It's very, very hard. But you, you, there's, there's. It's the classic nature nurture question. That is both. You have to have both. You can't get by with either just talent or just hard work at the at the very highest levels now that's part of the discussion but but you know one of the things that i ended up finding most interesting when i was researching endure is that the physical parts are easy to think about but the it's much harder to quantify uh you know what makes someone a champion in terms of the mental side of it it's it's uh it is elliot kipchoge able to push himself harder than other people or is he able to be more consistently at the top of his game than other people and i think the answer is 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 probably yes he because so in the vienna race he was the only competitor but in breaking two uh, a couple of years ago this other exhibition marathon there were three of the best runners in history who were all there and only kipchoge made it past the halfway mark on pace for two hours he was way ahead of the others so there's there's more to it than just and and they all had you know the the physical tools so there's more to it than just the physical capabilities and the sort of external technological aids like new shoes and things like that it's also there, there's something much much harder to quantify which we know intuitively but which hasn't until recently hasn't been part of the sort of scientific discussion which is what makes someone a champion what makes someone able to uh, you know, get to the finish line two inches before his or her competitor time after time after time. I love the definition which you gave in the book to quote, the struggle to continue against a mountain desire to stop, 
was your definition of endurance in the book. So I found this so, so fascinating. And we're going to delve into so many different aspects of the cognitive, the science, the, the mental aspect. But before we delve into that, I would just love to know, has this always been your definition or has it changed throughout your life? Oh, it's definitely changed. And and, and I should say, you know, that definition, the struggle to continue against a mounting desire to stop, w- wasn't my attempt to be poetic or anything like that. That's taken straight from a scientific paper, and which was a surprise to me because I think like, I suspect like most people, I started out with a very physical definition of endurance. You know, you need to know the VO2 max and the lactate threshold and all these other things, just in the same way that if you want to know how fast a car can go, you want to know, or how far a car can go, you want to know how much gas is in the tank, how big is the gas tank, how many cylinders does the engine have, and you know, the, you just want to know the parameters of the engine. And that's what I would have thought of endurance. And there are different ways of measuring the parameters of a human engine, but we we do have multiple ways. And and I thought, well, if you go into the lab and you measure enough things, you'll know who's going to win the race. And that's kind of actually the, 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 the predominant theme of 20th century physiology. Uh, scientists spent a ton of time trying to understand how the human engine worked. And they and they made it and they did very well at understanding how the human engine worked. But the you, know, you get to the end of the 20th century and you're still in a situation well you, where you can take if you show up at the Olympics and take all the everyone on the start line and put the, take them to the laboratory and do a bunch of tests, you're still never going to be able to predict exactly who's going to win the race or what order people are going to finish in because there's this X factor, there's this this other factor that comes from what's going on in your in your mind in your brain, and so it's in the last decade or so that that area has become really hot in science trying to understand how do we quantify how do we measure uh what the limits are and so this is where this change definition of endurance comes in that the the sort of newer picture is that the central thing isn't necessarily you know of course it matters how efficient your muscles are and how quickly you can get oxygen to the muscles but the central thing that determines when you reach your breaking point is 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 basically your sense of effort your sense of how hard it is and that sense of that subjective sense of effort it's informed by everything that's going on in your body. It's informed by how your muscles are feeling, what your body temperature is, how hard you're breathing. But it's also informed by what's going on in your mind, how confident you are, how positive you're feeling, how uh, you know, how well you slept last night, all these other things. So all your sense of effort is this, actually this massive supercomputer that's integrating everything about how you feel both physically and mentally. And so when we talk about the struggle to continue against a mounting desire to stop, that mounting desire to stop is your sense of effort. It's your subjective sense of how hard it is. And overcoming that, because your body is, or, or your brain at least, is is trying to keep you safe. It's trying to prevent you from overdoing it. It's trying to say, well, you know, you're, you're wasting a lot of energy on this one task. I think you should slow down and make sure you don't completely run out of energy and leave yourself vulnerable. So you've got this powerful evolutionary drive to slow down. The, those with the greatest endurance are able to push away that feeling or to, to struggle past it and say, I, I really want to stop, but right now I'm going to keep going. And that I think that applies in sport, but also applies much more generally in life to, to being able to persist through discomfort. Yeah, that's such a great answer. And one of the things which really surprised me about your work is when I picked the book up, originally I, I looked at it and I read the Goodreads reviews and whatnot, and I actually thought that it was going to be specifically about the physical side. And this is why I was I was so shocked. And one of the things which I actually wrote down on one of the pages of your book was reread alongside Angela Duckworth's Grit, the book of Grit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that they tie in so, so beautifully. Because when I when I read your work, I mean, I never thought of endurance in terms of, say, the cognitive push. Things like studying for an exam or or maybe even in the early days of growing a business to say keep on showing up when maybe there's little or the results are you know few and far between so just in terms of this was it your goal to maybe broaden the definition say of the topic of endurance it's definitely not what i started out trying to do i i I, my, my goal when I started this book was, you know, I'm a, I'm an endurance nerd. I'm a, a long distance runner and have been my whole life. I just, and I decided I, I, in my, let me back up and say in my previous book, which is more of a general fitness guide, I had tried to write what I thought people wanted to hear 
uh, give them to be as useful as possible to people. And that was interesting and, and somewhat useful. But it's a, a, a book is a lot of work. And I was left kind of with the feeling that I'd pandered to what I thought people wanted instead of just giving them the best thing, the best stuff that I had. So this time I decided, you know what? I'm not even going to worry about what people want to hear. I'm going to write the stuff that I find most interesting, and that's about endurance. And that's and and even if it's very narrow, it's it's the you know the the limits of endurance for a long distance runner. I'm just going to write it, and at the end of the day, even if the book doesn't sell, I'll have done something that that is interesting to me and that I'm proud of. Along the way, in that so so I gave myself the freedom to just follow what what I found interesting instead of trying to tailor it to a particular audience, and. It was along the way of that journey that I, endurance just kept getting broader and bigger to me. Because, you know, to write a book about endurance, you have to come up with a definition of it, right? And and that was one where I went looking for definitions and ended up coming uh, finding this, you know, struggle to continue against a mountain desire to stop. And that's when it started to occur to me, this isn't really just about running a race. This is about a lot of, of different things. I... I wrestled with the idea of how broad to make it in the book because there are some pretty obvious analogies, as like you're saying, to th- to the endurance required to to stay up studying for an exam or to to push through on you know preparing a presentation or even running a business. Uh, I decided not to do that explicitly, not to write that in the book, partly because I think we're sort of we we often. Uh, I, I find if you anytime anything happens in the world, you, you open the newspaper the next day and it's like, here's three things that, you know, the latest deal on Brexit can teach you about, you know, running a business or whatever. And it's like sometimes those analogies get really forced. And so I thought it'd be more powerful. I, I, ho- I hope people will take those those insights and lessons that we're talking about. But I think it's more powerful if people see the parallels for themselves and take what they think is relevant than if I try and uh, – start talking about the things that I know less about and say, this is how you can run a business. You know what I mean? So I, I, I think it, it became much broader for me, but I decided not to, 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 not to force it that, in that direction. When I read the book, I approached this say specifically more for the, for the physical side, but I found myself so pleasantly surprised really that it went into the mental aspects. And for someone like me that is, you know, a, a real book lover and that reads a book, I always appreciate the ones which I finish the book and then it leaves me with more questions than answers. <laughs> that's how uh-huh. I, that's in my own life how I have scaled the the good books against the ones which I'll probably never read again. I'm very glad to hear that, and I, and I will say, you know, I've done a bunch of talks uh, since the book has come out, and and sometimes what I get some some of the questions I get will be like. That was really interesting, but you didn't give me the answers. Uh, you know, I, I was waiting for you to tell me what should I do, and and uh, you know, so for me it was like, if I had the answers, I would give them to you. And of course, I can, I could come up, I could, I could invent five answers, like the five, here's the five things you should do. But the moment I do that, then all all of a sudden the rest of the book is going to start getting twisted in order to support these whatever five answers I've decided to give instead of giving the ambiguity. So my hope was that there'd be enough people like you who would uh, appreciate being made to think and not necessarily getting the answers. Um, you, you know, much as I would have loved to, <laughs> to to give the answers, right? Like if I had the answers, I would give them. I don't, it's just, the thing is, I, I to me, what this book did for me is force me to rethink what I thought endurance was and the ways in which it applies. Uh, and, and hopefully that's, and it left me with a lot of questions and hopefully it's left you with some interesting questions. And, uh, and, and yeah, I, I'm glad there are people who are, who appreciate being, being left with questions rather than just simply getting all the answers. That sort of sums up the 80, 20, one, everything now type of, you know, society, this instant gratification, you know, pass me the marshmallow, Whereas one of the biggest takeaways that I had now was this idea of suffering. You sort of touched on earlier with Kipchoge. When I thought about it, I remember it, it took me back to this time earlier this year where myself and a couple of friends, we did the Everest base camp walk and we made it about 5,000 metres up. By this point, the weather's horrendous. We haven't showered in days. We're living off this... Nepalese curry which is called dalbat you can barely sleep up there because of the altitude and I remember on 
one of the days it was pretty early in the morning it was cover it was hammering down with rain we were just about to approach this incline there was a guy to my right who was just maniacally laughing and i i I've, I've at this point i felt as if i was really on death's door and i remember this guy turns to me and he was like you've got to love the struggle. (laughs) And and I remember thinking, I was like, oh my God, this guy is crazy. But even when I delved more into your work, it sort of made me think that the things which are worth doing or the things which bring you fulfillment are the things which we have to suffer for. And is that what your idea of suffering is as well? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Suffering's this big, complex topic with a lot of things to say about it. So I think I I agree with the the crazy, maniacally laughing guy in a sense that that uh, to me, like, for an achievement to really stick with me or an experience to really uh, have a lot of meaning for me, there has to have been a chance that I would fail, right? Like, <laughs> there has to be something hard about it. It's not like. I wonder if I can roll this ball down the hill. Like, of course you can. It's not hard. Going up the hill is hard. And that's when what achieving that gives it meaning. But I think that suffering, there's a lot more to say about suffering in, in, in that one of the, I think one of the greatest transitions you can make, and, and, so, and this is something that I, th- this is something where I think endurance activities, whether it's running or hiking the Everest Base Camp Trail, things like that, help you make that transition is to see suffering as essentially just information that that I think uh, if if you if you think of someone who's let's say who I, so let me give a running example because that's my world if, if you think of someone who has never run before and decides they want to run 5k with their mates in six months and they start going out for little short runs when they first start they're out of shape they go for a run and immediately they're panting they're out of breath their legs are are aching and they're viewing this as a panic signal, as a like, whoa, I have to stop, I'm going to die. And as they keep training, one of the, a couple of things happen. We know that their, their, their muscles and their lungs and their hearts get stronger, so they're able to push harder. But th- that's obvious. But what's less obvious is that people learn to just accept the discomfort of pushing hard and, and they understand that just because I'm breathing hard and my legs are burning doesn't mean I'm going to die. It just means that I can't keep doing this indefinitely. And so you start to reinterpret that pain or that suffering or that those sorts of signals, not as a as an alarm signal that signals impest, impending disaster, but just as information that tells you where you're at. And you start to view it as, as so the, the, you know, maybe stage one is you start to view it as impersonal information. And then over time, stage two is you progress to to kind of relish the discomfort because you know it tells you you're doing something that's hard and that that's going to leave you with a sense of satisfaction when you achieve it. And I I, I remember hearing a, uh, a an endurance researcher once giving a talk and he was and, and make, making this point that maybe all really successful endurance athletes the thing that unites them is they have a streak of benign masochism that that in some way they enjoy the struggle uh, and and that's a sort of prerequisite. If you don't enjoy the struggle, you're not going to run you know, 140 miles a week for, for five years or 10 years in order to get to where Elliot Kipchoge is, you're going to be like, well, this is a lot less fun than lying on the sofa. So I'm going to go lie on the sofa. So, so yeah, I think, I think suffering is a really, uh, it's an interesting thing and, 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 and a more complex and nuanced thing than just, we think of it suffering is bad. And, uh, and it's not like, you know, there are a lot of people in the world who are in great pain and, and that's not good, but, but suffering can carry some, some, something more than just discomfort. Yeah. I'm just really thinking out loud here and in terms of what you said, but then in terms of, you know, that masochistic side, that sort of love of suffering in the pursuit of a greater goal. And I'm just wondering, what's the best way I could phrase this? I know it's difficult to, to give these, I'm not really a fan of questions like this, but I, I wonder, have you found any sort of correlative effect between maybe people which do have that masochistic side and people that are more likely to achieve their goals. You know what? What I find really difficult to tease out is is which comes first. Uh, mm, do you do are, are you a driven person, and and as a result, you're 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 wrapped up in your goals, and so you you learn to appreciate or to relish the 
the the suffering or is it if you relish the suffering you end up you just you, you go out and you, you seek out hard things and as a result you become a, a high achiever um I, again I, I said before i'm a great equivocator and i think there's probably a little bit of truth in both on both sides of this uh, there are some studies showing that if you do hard training you become more uh willing to tolerate discomfort so your your pain sensitivity doesn't change so so if you're if you you know you get let's say a series of progressively stronger electric shocks or something before and after you're still at the same point you say hey that hurts but the point at which you say hey that's too much i can't take it anymore gets a lot higher with regular training as long as that training is intense enough that it causes some discomfort at least sometimes so so we do get better at it on on the road it's it's not it's not something you're born with uh, and you either have or you don't have it in fact there's more data showing that it it kind of waxes and wanes with your training so it's not something that once you learn to tolerate suffering that's it check that off the list now you know how to do it in fact it's something that you're co- that is constantly improving or getting worse depending on what you're doing in life and so something you have to constantly be working on is the ability to to to, to deal with discomfort which and 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 to deal with it often the what this involves is basically psychological s- strategies of of distracting yourself, not think, not focusing, not obsessing about discomfort, or like I was saying before, reframing it as as neutral information rather than negative, you know, uh, and a negative emotional experience. So these are things that are that are constantly ongoing. Are some people born with that ability, and are and and these people then are are born with that sort of disposition that they 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 like to seek out suffering probably probably to some degree but it's like it's like any other trait some people start at a different starting point than others but all of us can get better at it that actually took me back to the podcast we did with professor david sinclair who is a an anti-aging expert at harvard told me that one of the phrases that he lives by was a latin quote which was homesis contentus which stands for, if you want a good life, do hard things. And what, <laughs> what, yeah, what you just touched on there, it's quite paradoxical to what I feel as if the common advice is in the sense that really discomfort, it can be our friends. We do definitely have to make war with it. So I'm just wondering, do you have any strategies, any tools how how should we approach that becoming friends with discomfort if you will yeah i mean i guess the 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 the, the simplest answer would be very gradually <laughs> and 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 maybe i'd add the the marketing slogan you know just do it but I, I guess an example from my own life is so when i was in my 20s and i, I was a very very serious distance runner and and training was my life and so it wasn't very hard for me to get motivated because that's the thing i cared most about in life and so i was out there suffering all the time i'm in my 40s now and i have a couple of young kids and my my wife has a busy job and and life is much more hectic and so i have to it's it's a different relationship i have to think differently now about let's say in the context of physical fitness getting out and and uh doing my training, my exercise, which I which I do for a number of reasons, both physical and mental. Um, but one of the one of the sort of rules of thumb that I that I've come up with is I decide what I want to do. And my week can can comprise lots of different things. I do, I run most days, but I also play basketball on Friday nights, and I have a friend I play tennis with. I try to go rock climbing, so I try to use my body in different ways. But six of the six days a week, I go for a run, for the, you know, barring any any you know other things going on. Some of those days I'm really busy. And I'm I'm not sure that I can really fit that in, but what I do is I I go and get out the door. Uh, I, I I go and even if let's say I'm not feeling great or or I'm I'm busy and I'm stressed I have a deadline. I said, well I can afford ten minutes so I'm going to go out for te- for a ten minute jog. And some days I get out and it's like yeah holy crap I've got a lot of things going on and I turn around after five minutes get home after ten minutes jump through the shower and and get to work and that's fine, but. Most days, once I'm out there, it's like, okay, get over yourself, Alex. You're not that important. You, 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 you can afford another 10 minutes. You can afford another 20 minutes for that matter, and you can do a half-hour jog. And if, and if you do that, then 
or and, and you can you know you can push yourself let's say you can make this this day a hard day cram cram some some fat some some high int- intensity intervals into this half hour um and if i do that i feel much better about things and i'm glad i did but if i'd been sitting at my computer thinking okay i need to get out for a run now and i need to make sure i have half an hour plus shower time so 45 minutes i don't have that time i'm not going to do it so uh, this is a long-winded sorry uh, sort of rambling way of saying uh don't don't start with the high goal of saying I have to go out and punish myself in in this very uh, severe way. Uh, get out the door, do something, and build on it. Give you you know, give you give yourself the opportunity to start, and don't force don't force it at all times. Don't consider it's a failure if you uh, don't do something hard on a given day. But by establishing a routine where you can gradually push back your limits, um, I guess t- to fall back on another cliche most people really overestimate what they can achieve in the short term, but underestimate what they can achieve in the long term. So just by keeping and getting out there and not, not focusing on, you know, am I way fitter than I was three weeks ago? Am I way tougher than I was a month ago? Just keep doing it. And in five years, you'll be, you'll be really shocked at how far you can get. Just in terms of your own experience, but there, so you just give the fantastic example there about lowering the barriers to entry, which is a definite strategy which I've personally used to help me overcome things like procrastination and taking action if I'm not feeling like it. What are some of the phrases or self-talk which you may use, say on a day in which you've scheduled a run and you may really not feel like doing it, but you know that you should. What are you telling yourself at that point? Yeah, it's, self-talk is a great topic, uh, and it's one that uh, I, w- I wish I'd considered more systematically a, a lot earlier because I think it has a tremendous performance-enhancing capabilities. For me, uh, you know, there's there's different things I think about at, at different times, and to some extent, if I if I'm just trying to if I'm wrestling with the idea of am I going to get out the door then part of me is you know the 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 argument part of me or the self-talk part is 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 using my future bias my my saying how will i feel about this in an hour um because i know from experience that in an hour an hour after having gotten myself out the door for a run i almost never find myself saying oh god i can't believe i wasted that that 25 minutes and now i'm behind I'm almost always like, thank God I got outside. I'm feeling good now. Now I'm feeling productive. My head's clear. So I know that I know on a rational basis that I will be glad I did that in the future. And I've tried to remind myself of that. But the truth is, those sorts of arguments are those sorts of internal arguments are um, they take emotional energy. They take time. And so the most powerful thing for me is to actually have developed that you know where where i'm at and where i'm at now which is i'm lucky and i'm glad is that it's a habit and there's almost no thought involved it's just like i my self-talk is don't even bother pushing back against this you know negative voice in my head don't bother there's no this isn't an option i don't this is this is why I, i run six days a week uh, under normal circumstance, or you know, if I was balancing a, 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 or designing an optimal fitness program, I might say, you know, four runs a week would be great because I'm doing other things too, and that'll leave me with time. But then I spend too much time every morning thinking, I wonder if I should run this morning. No, I'm not going to run this. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. No, if I'm running most mornings, it's just like there is no negotiation. It doesn't matter how cold it is. It doesn't matter how raining it is or how rainy it is. It doesn't matter how busy I am. I always get out the door. And in a sense, that's my self-talk is this is what I do. This this is, it's it's not a debate. It's not a discussion. This is what I do. And what happens once I'm out the door, that's totally open for negotiation. Then I can decide once I've, once I've got over that initial hump, I can decide to turn around after five minutes if I want, but I always get out the door. Now that's, 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 I've established that habit over a long period of time. So that's not necessarily where, what will work for, for other people in a given moment, but I, I really, I really am a big believer in the power of habit. If you can decide what habits are going to be good for you, and then just decide that those habits are going to be non-negotiable. And every time it's like, you know, below, you know, freezing rain outside, and it feels like crap, and you decide, ah, maybe today's a good day to take a day off. You're weakening that habit. And every time you get out there and do it, even though it's tough, you're strengthening. And you're like, ah, remember that time when I, I went out, even though, you know, it, it, it was a hurricane outside. Of course, well, if I did that, of course I'm going out the door today. What it sounds to me is if the going out the door 
that is ingrained in your identity, which is part of a process which you've cultivated that identity over many, many years, over many days of not feeling like it, but still going out the door. It's sort of what I've done with myself, where I've cultivated this growth mindset and told myself over and over again that I'm a lifelong learner, that I can learn any skill. As soon as that comes into question, then I just do it over and over and over again. And like you said, it just becomes a habit. Whereas now I've built in things like reading time and times to study. So I think that that's that's so, so important in terms of that identity pact which you've made. That's that's a great point that it is it's something that you have created for yourself and I have created for myself. And of course, you have to start somewhere, but p- part of the part of the power is that you can create that identity and you can tell yourself this is who I am even before you're really there, the kind of fake it till you make it uh, a, a approach that it, it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy if if you if you're consistent enough about it. So I think that's that's an important point too. Yeah, so important. So if I just take this conversation back to the book, one of the things in there which this this story, oh my god, I remember I, I read this and I was I was like, wow. So the story is you're back in high school. You are trying to break a sub four minutes on the fifteen hundred. Was it four years, I think, that you tried to break this time for was yeah i was i was actually in third year university before i actually broke it i'd started in high school and for four straight years i was running 401 or 402 wow for about four years you were trying to break this sub four minute mile on the 1500 couldn't do your always a second or two out and then i think if i'm right in saying that at one point you found out that the timekeeper was a couple of seconds off and then as soon as you discover this then the interpretation that I had of it anyway was that this sort of freed you of the mental shackles. And I know that afterwards you ended up running three minutes 52, which is, you know, in the running world, that's a, that's an incredible, a, a huge substantial improvement. What is your interpretation of, of this event and this amazing story? Yeah, it, I mean, so basically, I, I still don't know exactly what happened. Basically, this this one, this breakthrough race, it, it, it seems as though the timekeeper must have missed the start and just started his watch maybe three seconds late. And so he was calling out the times every 200 meters and and they were way faster than I expected. It was 27 seconds for the first 200 and 57 for the first 400, which is way faster. And yet I was comparing this to my internal sense of effort, which is this sort of master switch. And I was like, wow, I feel really good. That was the easiest 27 seconds, 100, 27 second 200 that I've ever run. Wow, I, so I better relax. Wow, I still feel really good if, if for having run 57. So I got the sense that I was having this magical day, which was actually just, I was being tricked inadvertently by the timekeeper. And by about halfway, I, then I st- stopped listening to the splits and stopped and just thought to myself, you know, like, don't, don't, don't even worry about what the timekeeper says. This is the day of your life. You are having this amazing day. Just go. And so I, instead of like, listening every 200 meters thinking, okay, am I on pace? Should I speed up? Should I slow down? Which is what I've been doing in my attempts to break four minutes. I just put my head down and ran as hard as I could. And that, and then I ended up, like you said, I, I, it was a nine second personal best. I ran 352. And, uh, and so that really imprinted itself on my mind, both to, to make the point that what we think of as physical limits are often influenced or controlled by the brain on some level that that what clearly i was capable of running faster than four minutes before if i ran 352 that day so i'd been somehow holding myself back and that somehow this was connected to my perception of how i was doing or what was possible and so you know i wish i could say the end of the story then was that and once i you know learned the secrets of my mind i was able to go and set you know make the olympics and set a world record it wasn't quite that simple but it, it certainly made me aware of uh, the way in which the ways in which the mind can both hold you back and spur you forward. There was a time, I think it may have been maybe three to four years ago. I just started a strength training program, and one of the goals which I had was I wanted to squat 140 kilos for five reps, and I think my best at that point was maybe two reps. It was a pretty big goal, especially because I'd been doing bodybuilding and strength training for quite a while. I probably trained for about 12 weeks. I really system loaded. And after the 12 weeks, 
it felt as if my squat had gone worse. What was my PB was maybe it improved by maybe a rep. At that point, I I think I had 140 kg, which is 315 pounds for for three reps. So I was I remember I was so disheartened, and uh, a couple of weeks later, I travelled up to my university town. I was training legs with one of my friends. But what's interesting about this is that in my local gym, the weighted plates they're all just hexagonal. They've just got the weight on. Uh, so you identify the weight basically by just whatever number it says on them. They are all the same color. There's these black hexagonal plates. But when I went to my university gym, it was more of an of an Olympic lifting type platform. So the red cylinder plates were 25 kilograms. The blue ones were 20 and the green ones were 10 kilogram ones. So I remember I was traveling up there with my friend and I'd barely been in there before. And I remember that my friend told me that the red plates were 20 kilogram ones, <laughs> when in fact they were uh, 25 kilogram ones. So my friend was on the squat rack beside me. And I remember I put two 25 kilogram plates on, on either side, thinking that that was 100 kilograms, when in fact it was, a hun- when it, in fact it was 120 kilograms. And... After a little while, I remember I put two green plates on, and I remember I squatted it for six reps. So that's that's 140 kilograms, which I did for six reps. And I remember I turned to my friend, and I was like, well, I was like, I can't believe how weak I feel. I said, like, 120 kilograms. I was like, I, I think I'm losing strength. And uh, I remember I, I took the plates off, and I saw that it was, it was 140 kilograms, which I had done. <laughs> For six reps, which was a, a, an enormous PB. And it was completely, a, and I'm certain of this, is the fact that it was just a complete placebo effect. I imagine, in, you know, in a similar case to yours, where my mind had just been, you know, so shackled by these mental barriers. So, my, my question to you would be I mean, how big of an impact are these mental barriers and these? these shackles which we can sometimes tie ourselves up in yeah it's i mean definitely one of those questions i wish i had the uh, you know a quantifiable answer to because yeah. you know stories like mine and, and like yours are, are are actually not that uncommon like it happens to a lot of people there there's a there's a famous strength training text uh strength and conditioning book by a guy named vladimir zatsiorsky that was published back in the 90s and he's an ex-soviet coach he worked with soviet weightlifters in the 60s and 70s and he has this number where it's like your true your 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 ability to lift is you know typically let's say i can't remember you know 75 percent of your true strength trained weightlifters can get do 80 to 85 percent and then they can do an uh, you know an extra five percent or something in competition that all these things uh so he had this sort of exact number on what is the hidden reserve behind uh behind what feels like your max uh I, I, you know, it says that in his text, and I, I emailed him. He's in his 80s now, or a couple of years ago, at least. He was in his 80s, living in Pennsylvania. He and you know, he was still active academically, writing papers and stuff. Um, and I asked him, like, wh- where did you get those numbers on? Uh, you know, the, the, like, how did you test that the average person can hit, get 75% of their true max, and the weightlifters can get 80%? And, and, and to my great disappointment, his, his email back was like. Uh, I can't remember, <laughs> you know, like, to be honest, I can't remember where those, and it's like, dude, it's in your textbook. <laughs> um, but to be fair, he's in his mid eighties at this point. So I, I, I kind of, my suspicion is those numbers are just kind of estimates. And I think it really depends a little on the context and, you know, whether you're talking about, uh, running a race, squatting, and there's a big difference between, let's say squatting, uh, or, or deadlifting, let's say, which takes, you know, 17 different muscles acting in a specific you know, order and synchronization versus the way they do some of the sort of tests in the lab where they'll just have your thumb muscle or whatever, and you'll just be moving your thumb and comparing that to, you know, giving an electric shock to your thumb, a single isolated muscle. And because, uh, because it's a lot more, there's a lot more potential for hidden reserves when you're having to, uh, coordinate the action of a whole bunch of different muscles because then you're sort of you're trying to stay safe and not fall over and stuff and so this is where you get of course into the questions like uh you know can can you lift a car 
off someone who's trapped underneath if you really you know are are jacked up on adrenaline and and most of those stories there's usually some sort of apocryphal element to them but there are some where there's pretty well witnessed that it's like no this guy was under the car and this other guy lifted it up and they were able to pull him out um and it's like well and you know the world record for the deadlift is you know 1100 pounds and a chevy camaro weighs 3000 pounds so how do you explain that Hmm. and there are you know well you start by saying well he didn't lift the camaro over his head he just jacked it up off the back wheels so he's maybe lifting half the weight and in fact he just lifted one corner so it's less than half the weight. And in fact, there's some strong shock absorbers, which are uh, meant that all he was doing was l- taking pressure off the shocks until the guy could be pulled out from under the the uh, the wheels. And so you get to the point where it's like, well, maybe lifting that the corner of that Camaro was more like 800 pounds. And, and that guy and the guy who lifted it in, according to the witness, uh, has actually lifted deadlifted, you know, 750 in the gym. So it's not that crazy. It's not that so. So I guess all of which is a long way of saying. So I don't think we can do double what we think we can do. It's not like if only we could unshackle ourselves, we could leap over tall buildings in a single bound. It's more like whatever you can do. There's almost whatever you think you can do. There's probably in in almost all cases there's a little bit more in reserve, whether it's five percent or ten percent or two percent. Um, knowing it's there doesn't mean that it's easy to get there, but it suggests that under the right circumstances, you may well be able to. Uh, Kept, catch glimpses of that reserve sometimes, uh, as as you have and I have, thanks to some uh, deception or unintentional trickery on the on the parts of people around us. Yeah, some real mental fuckery. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's another way of putting it. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's interesting you say that because uh, I know that there's this this quote which is very popular in the self help, the personal development space. I think it's been popularized by the Navy SEALs, and that is. That when you think you're done, you're only forty percent done. Now, I'm not sure worries about that quote, but something about it. I I I'm not. I I think just blanket statements in general. I'm not a bit, very big fan of. But I'd I'd love to know. You know, just just what is your what is your opinion on, on say that that quote in particular, which I I seem to see all the time. Yeah, that's from David Goggins, who's an ex Navy SEAL. Um. I guess when I see a quote like that, I don't I, I I don't imagine that he's really intending that number to be any anything real. It's he's 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 trying to make a point that you can go farther than you want. And so I don't take the number seriously. I don't think there's any basis for the number. I take his point seriously, and I agree with it. Um, that that uh, especially in the context of you know some of the things David Goggins is is famous for, you know, doing these sort of two hundred mile races and things like that. Um, if you were to take, you know, just go down onto the street of any major city and take the first thousand people you found. So not necessarily runners, just random people, thousand people, uh, fly them out into the desert and say, you're going to do a 200 mile race, but you can quit whenever you, you, you feel like you've, you've had enough. Um, it, it, I don't know how this would play out. I've never actually done this obviously. And, and, and you know, this is not a study anyone could do, but it's like, what point would people quit? And then, you know, put a gun to their heads and see what what they could really do. Um, maybe it would be 40%. Maybe people would be like, after 60 miles, they're like, I'm done. But then it turns out they could actually go, you know, if they had to, they could go 180, 100, you know, miles. But in in most contexts, when, when people are doing tasks that are already familiar to them, then I don't think they have 60% reserve. I think, I think that sort of 40% is like, if you're doing... Well, first of all, I think it's just a, a sort of number that's pulled out of his head. But but I think if, if you were to try and find some basis for it, it would be if you're in a really unfamiliar environment where you really don't know, you've never done this kind of thing before, you don't know what your body is capable of, then yeah, it goes back to what I was saying before about when you take someone who's never run before and they're training for their first 5K, they misinterpret these signals like being out of breath or having burning legs as be, as meaning that they're on the border of death when all it means is that they're a little bit tired. And so, if you if you push that to extremes, then yeah, I, I think that the the less you the, the less familiar you are with a given task, the more you're likely to conclude that okay, I've reached my limits when in fact you're nowhere near them. It's something I would like to ask you in terms of say peak performance and and progress is let's let's look at like the the starting bar for where somebody would progress through and the example which i keep thinking of is i keep looking at the olympics where they've got the the pole vaulters 
where they set the bar, you know, about half high where in practice they've flown, you know, probably five to ten feet over it. But it always seems as if they only just make it over. But yet, as they keep lifting the bar over, they, they keep managing to go over until physically they can't. So I'm just thinking in terms of the mental side alongside the physical side. How important would it be to say pick a goal which is maybe just slightly above perhaps what your physical capacity could be? Yeah, I think that's a that's a great point. And I think that our the way we set goals has a very, very profound impact on what we discover we're we're capable of. And I, you know, I bet in a lot of cases, if you were to talk to those pole vaulters after they've just cleared something that's well below their personal best, they would say, oh, oh you know, actually, that was a lot harder than I expected. You know, like, I thought it was going to be easy, but it, it turned out it was, it, it, you know, it, for whatever reason, it felt pretty hard because, you know, it, rarely, rarely do things feel super easy. I know this is the case in in, in running, too. And, and the way you set your goals, there's, a, okay, a couple of things. First of all, there's there's a, a whole body of studies that basically involve deceiving the subjects where you have, you, you know, you have them run some sort of race or cycle some sort of race or whatever the case may be. And you, you mess with the clocks, for example, or the, the distance feedback so that they're going faster than they think they are or slower than they think they are. And so they're, they're getting different sort of feedback. And it turns out this really messes with your, your sense of what you're capable of. And if you do in the right way, for example, one of the things they do is, okay, you bring, bring people into lab, have them do an all-out time trial on the bike in a virtual reality environment. Then they bring them back on another day and say, okay, now you're going to race yourself. There's going to be a virtual reality avatar of your previous performance, and we're going to see if you can beat what you did the, on the last day. Now, everybody knows that they're capable of doing what they did on the last day because they did it already. And they figure, well, of course I can do 0.1% faster. And so sure enough, they go out and beat the avatar of themselves. But what's happened unbeknownst to them is that the avatar has been speeded up. And if you speed it up by 1%, everyone, most people beat, are able to beat that avatar. If you speed it up by 2%, it gets a little trickier, uh, and in fact, I think in one one study that I'm thinking of, when they sped up the avatar by two percent, on average, people got one point seven percent faster. So they lost to the avatar, but they they still went significantly faster than they did before. Like two percent's a, a lot when you're talking about a race. And when they sped up the avatar by five percent, then people actually got worse because they tried to keep up with what they thought was their previous best performance, and you know. Pretty pretty early on, it became clear that something was off, and they're, they're not feeling good today. They can't keep up with their own previous, what they think is their own previous performance, and so they end up doing worse. They, they're demoralized. So this goes precisely to what you were saying: is you have to think very carefully about how you set goals. <coughs> Excuse me, because if you if you, you, not that ambitious goals are bad, but sometimes if you set the goal too high. You, you get demoralized too quickly. Whereas if you set it just beyond your reach, that's the optimal to get the most out of yourself. And the, the, the other point I just want to, you know, sorry to ramble, but on the, the sort of second thing that springs to mind with that sort of question is, it, again, in endurance racing, and, and I, I, hopefully this is serving as a metaphor for life in general, but we, we're, we often think about, you know, even pacing, staying within your limits. Like, I think I can run this marathon in three hours so i'm going to run the first half in an hour and a half and i'm going to uh you know try and be as even as possible and one thing we sometimes don't consider there is when you do that you've decided on how on the sort of ceiling of your performance the moment the start gun fires you set off at a given pace that you're trying to maintain and that may be a good way of preventing yourself from going out too fast and blowing up but it also sort of eliminates the chances that you're going to have a surprisingly good race, that you're going to feel unexpectedly good and surpass your expectations. So I think there's a case for you know setting your goals just above your limits. But there's also a case for allowing yourself to for not for not getting too fixated on goals in the first place, to, for not for not holding yourself to a specific performance level. And you know, I'm th this is on the on my mind right now because uh, you know, we're speaking today, the day after the Canadian Olympic marathon trial. So yesterday was 
the Toronto uh, Waterfront Marathon where uh, part of the Olympic team for next year's Olympics was selected in Canada. And the guy who won the men's race was a huge shock, huge, huge shock. His best time coming in was 2.16. He wasn't even invited to the pre-race press conference because nobody thought he would be a factor. But he went out and ran 2.09 and qualified, won, won the trials and qualified for the Olympics. And 2.09 is a very, very fast time. And one of the things I noticed watching the race is that he wasn't wearing a watch. And after the race, that someone asked him about that. And he said, yeah, you know, I noticed that paying, constantly looking down at, you know, a, a watch and thinking about my pace was limiting me. I was, it was holding me back when I felt good and pushing me on when I didn't feel good. And so I decided to run today. I had no idea whether I was on pace to make the Olympics or anything like that. I was just out there running. And when I felt good, I kept pressing. And if I didn't feel good, I, I backed off a little bit. And that's just how I ran. And he went out and ran the second fastest time in Canadian history with no idea of his pacing because he just wanted to, to listen to the internal signal of his, of his body. So, so that's a, sort of another thing to keep in mind. Wow, that's, that's fascinating. So, so do you think that essentially that what he has done by there is that he sort of freed himself from his own limits, essentially? Because if he has a watch, maybe he could look down to one point and he could think, running at a fairly good pace i'm above schedule i'll need to slow perhaps i should slow down do you think that what he's done there is he sort of freed himself from from that rigidity yeah i i mean i think in a sense he deliberately managed to create the conditions that i had in that race when when i was getting the wrong splits that I, and i eventually had to just sort of stop think, listening to the splits he just chose let's not have the splits now i should i should throw in the caveat from a distance running perspective that I, I, I that's still it's like that, that surprises me he was able to do that and for a lot of people having a some sort of watch on is i think can be a pretty useful fail safe but there's a, there's a so he's at one end of the spectrum he's like forget the watch i'm gonna go with intuition at the other end of the spectrum you have people who are wired up from head to toe with the latest gadgets and are constantly checking them. And one of the new phenomena phenomena that you see in distance running is people are running, you know, measured loops. They're on a track, but they don't they do they do a lap, but they don't finish at the finish line. They keep going for another five meters because that's when their GPS tells them that the the lap is done. Yeah. And it's like you're too focused on the external and you're not focused enough on how you're feeling. So for for many people, I think the answer won't necessarily be to throw out your watch, but it would be to Think carefully about how dependent you become on it, and 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 if we're sort of extending the metaphor uh, to uh, to other activities, think think about external feedback versus internal sense of how you're doing, and and don't become overly reliant maybe on either end of the spectrum. I remember that example, obviously, of of Roger Bannister, where he broke that four minute mile, and then I'm sure you'll be able to tell me, was it just a couple of weeks later that? other people broke it or now that high school kids have broken it <laughs> yeah john landy the second guy was just a few weeks after and he'd been i think six times it was sort of analogous to my own experience he'd been six times uh running 402 and then bannister broke it and a few weeks later landy broke it so there you know uh maybe it's just a coincidence but it, it sure seems like once the barrier was broken it sort of freed up landy to do the same thing really does show that that although our bodies and our minds can keep us safe it also can hinder us really pushing closer to our potential so this has been such a, a, a fascinating conversation it's given me so much to think about i'm definitely going to take this inspiration to my gym session later this evening so i just got a couple more questions for you alec one of my questions to you would be is based on your work and you know your findings or maybe your own life or, or could be something that you see in the world so we are a show rooted in action taking this doesn't have to be specific to your book it can be specific to anything maybe your life philosophies or whatever we always ask our uh, whoever comes on the show to issue us and our audience a challenge of maybe two to three things that we could do today could be mind body soul do you have a challenge for us and for our audience I, yeah, I, you know, I, I'll go with a, a, a tried and true one, which is if you have not been physically active today, uh, do it. It uh, d- doesn't really matter what, what you do, but do it in some way. Make the time, no matter how busy you are, whether it involves, you know, getting off the, the tube a, a couple stops early. But 
the benefits for your physical and mental health, uh, I, you know, I couldn't be more convinced that it's the most power, single most powerful thing you can do in almost every domain is to be physically active every day. And, and the, the sort of second element to that that I would add is tune into what your internal monologue is during that physical activity, especially if it's if you decide to do something that's hard, that's challenging. Listen to what you're saying to yourself. Uh, if you're like me, you'll probably find that there's a reasonable amount of negative self-talk. The harder it is, the more you'll be like, oh, this is really hard. Uh, you can't do this. You should probably stop. You don't have to magically make that self-talk go away, but be aware of it and start to think about ways that you can change that self-talk, ways that you can uh, alter it from, you know, this is really hard to, uh, this is really good for me, or I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm so glad that I've made the choice to do this, or I've trained for this and I, I can push through it. Because that, more than anything, is what I took away from the research that went into to my book, is, is that as, as wishy-washy as it sounds, or as sort of voodoo-ish as it sounds, that m mental state and those those internal monologues actually really affect what we're able to do. You are an author, so I'd love to know, are there any books which have had a fantastic impact on your life? Oh boy, there are a lot. <laughs> let me let me let me start with a couple shout outs to books out this year that I think people would enjoy, especially if they're uh, listeners of yours. Uh, David Epstein has a book called Range: Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialist World. Um, David Epstein's probably the sports science journalist that I respect the most. He wrote a book called uh, The Sports Gene, uh, maybe six years ago, which I think is the best sports science book ever. Range is a little different. It's more about talent development in general and why it's a counterpoint to all the sort of 10,000 hour rule stuff where it's like if you want to be great at something you have to do nothing but that thing from the time you're two years old you have to be Tiger Woods and he makes the argument that no you know what if you look at the literature there's a lot more evidence Tiger Woods is the exception the rule is people like Roger Federer who played a ton of sports all the way through high school and didn't as a teenager didn't really specialize until his mid-teens and tennis and then used all that diverse experience to become, you know, the greatest or at least among the greatest tennis players ever. And and I think it has, for anyone who's a parent or is, is considering, you know, career paths, uh, Range is a really fantastic book that I would highly recommend. Um, and I'll just give a bonus recommendation. Uh, in You know, in memory of Roger Bannister, who passed away last year, maybe it was two years ago, uh, his his uh, autobiography, which he wrote in 1955, just the year after, when he was still a medical student, just the year after, uh, or, or still a young doctor, the year after breaking the four-minute mile, is a great tale of athletic achievement, but it's also a very thoughtful book about the place of sport in life and physical activity. Uh, he, he was definitely not a, an obsessive runner. He was a, a complete human being, and, and so I think uh, his autobiography is a great read. My next and penultimate question to you, Alex, would be, are there or have there been in your life any societal norms, societal rules, societal conventions that you love to break? Hmm. I'm sure my my wife would probably mention some relating to personal hygiene and, and <laughs> politeness, but uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, pro probably the most... Uh, the thing that I did that was maybe most surprising to people, first of all, uh, when I was, so I, I started out as a physicist. I, I, I did a, a PhD and, and, uh, um, and a postdoc and spent my twenties working in physics. And I made a big career switch when I was 28. Uh, and I made a, a leap into the unknown and, um, from a fairly, secure and well-defined career path i went back to to university and did a degree in journalism which was was and remains a, a an industry in in total free fall uh basically you know it's, it's sort of like the the polar ice caps it's it, you know it's disappearing as we speak from beneath our very feet so it was a very high risk thing to do and it was basically motivated by the fact that I just thought I wanted to do something that I was I was interested in and that I was willing to you know I wasn't starry-eyed about 
the fact that I was I would somehow get rich as a journalist. I, I thought I, I would rather live frugally as a journalist than than live well and securely as a physicist because th- I think it'd be more interesting. And I, I have zero regrets about that. So just sort of, and that's probably why I recommended David Epstein's range is that um, I think it's it's uh, it's very hard to buck the societal pressure to. Uh, get a career and a house and a you know a mortgage and a and all these sorts of things uh, and to me the, uh, a much at least and this is just me speaking personally but uh, a much more fruitful path to fulfillment was doing things that I was interested in even if it meant having less money. My last question to you, Alex, would be: Let's imagine that every person on the planet is tuned in hypothetically to the same frequency. And you could deliver a short but impactful message to everybody that's listening based on your truth, your work, whatever you decide essentially is your message. What would your message to the world be? That's a deep question. So deep that I I, I would feel bad saying, buy my book. <laughs> uh, if, if we've got everyone on the, in the, on the planet, it would be a shame not to put in a plug. Um, yeah, no, seriously, I'd go back to, to, uh, to, to what I said a, a little bit earlier that if there's one thing that I wish everyone could appreciate the power of, it's the power of physical activity. And I, and, and, and I know this message sounds sort of, uh, well-worn because we hear it so much, but it's obviously not well-worn enough because m- most people still aren't physically active and, and people are making false trade-offs feeling like I'm so busy, uh, you know, I, I need to put focus on my career or on my family life. Um, and in, in some rare cases, it's true. People are, are absolutely totally pushed to the wall and they don't have time. But I think in the vast majority of cases, those are false trade-offs and that if you spend a little time being physically active and it doesn't have to be at the gym, it can be in all sorts of contexts, playing sport, getting outdoors in nature, whatever the case may be, it will improve your career, it will improve your family life. Uh, so it will improve your mental health. It will it will do so much. So I, I really would if if you know if I had just one plug to give, it would be for everyone to to be active, get outside, and move and do things on a daily basis. Alex, we can our Freedom Pack family connect with you on social media, and do you have any closing thoughts for what has been an incredible, incredible conversation? Well, I, I really enjoyed the conversation. I think we really got to explore some some interesting angles, and that made me think in different ways. Um, to to connect with me. Uh, Twitter is probably the best option. My handle is Sweat Science, all one word. That's where I'm most active. Anything I write will show up there, and also just other articles that I find interesting and and discussions and things like that. I, I'm also on Facebook at Sweat Science, and I have a website AlexHutchinson.net, which has more sort of random trivia about me, I guess. But uh, yeah, Twitter's Twitter's pretty much where it's at. Amazing, Alex. I I can't thank you enough for coming on the show, and uh, everything will be linked below. It's been such a pleasure having you on. Thanks so much, Joe. I really uh, really enjoyed it.